You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around looking at What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, oh, yes. I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. You have no style. You Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great couple of weeks. I made it back from the Evergreen State, and I'm now currently trying to plan yet another holiday party for work. What absolute animal put all of these holidays this close together is just a a horrible person. So I am very tired, and not just because I was out till midnight like some animal in her early 20s two nights ago, trying to catch up on all the work movies I didn't get to see over the last several weeks. Also, 20-year-olds, just FYI, your knees are going to stop bending around the time you hit 30, and I feel like nobody talks about this. Consider this your heads up. Your knees, they just stop bending. It is the strangest thing, and no one talks about it. Anyway, the only movies I've seen in the past few weeks have been work ones, so no reviews because I've been there a year and still haven't looked up that policy. But, you know, Fablemans and Violet Night are both out right now, and I thought they were pretty great, so do with that information what you will. Also, learned I'm very attracted to David Harbour as Santa, and that's the thing I'm going to have to unpack in therapy, but, you know, that's a problem for another day and probably not this podcast. All right, let's see if I remember how to do this. Every time I take a week off, I feel like this is like not riding a bike at all. I feel like I lose all the skills, but yeah, let's go. This week for our yearly one-off episode, I've decided to do a brief history of the blockbuster film. For the better part of the last six decades, summer has meant big-budget, high-octane event films that see audiences heading to the theaters en masse. But how did this tradition begin? If you're a regular listener, you might remember a couple throwaway facts from a month ago about a certain film, perhaps instigating this. But now it's time to go into detail and look back at how the summer blockbuster has evolved since its birth in June of 1975. In this episode, we're going to cover the origins of the term blockbuster, early examples of blockbusters, and how a movie about a man-eating Carcharodon Carcarius changed the movie-going habits of the entire world. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. There is a creature alive today has survived millions of years of evolution without change, without passion, and without logic. It lives to kill. A mindless eating machine. It will attack and devour anything. It is as if God created the devil and gave him Every summer for the last 47 years, except, you know, the 2021 and kind of the 2021 one, two, cinephiles of all levels all across the world, though specifically more in the United States, have gone to the movies to do all those things Nicole Kidman mentions in that AMC ad seemingly everyone's obsessed with, and I still don't know why. 
And for the last 50 years, many of the most enduring motion pictures in the pop culture zeitgeist were typically released in the heat of the summer. Most of us have fond memories of seeing these films, many times it being our first trip to the theater. This was the time of year, in fact, that the first six Star Wars films released, and Jurassic Park, and 2012's The Avengers, Ghostbusters, Alien, Michael Keaton's Batman, The Goonies, Indiana Jones, the list goes on and on. But it wasn't always this way. Before we get any further, let's do the fun stuff that I know all of you love so much. The origins of all the things. And we're starting off with the origin of the term blockbuster. Yes, this is the thrilling film content that keeps some of you inexplicably coming back week after week. The term blockbuster has been around since the early 1940s and, contrary to popular belief, does not come from the practice of audiences lining up the street to get into a theater. The real origin of the term is, in fact, much darker. The term blockbuster was originally used in American press to describe bombs dropped from planes that could destroy entire city blocks, specifically the ones used during the Allied bombing of key targets in fascist Italy and also in Japan during World War II. From there, blockbuster would go on to refer to something that was metaphorically explosive and or shocking. Blockbuster referring to certain types of films possibly could have in part happened because the term block booking was already around in film, which was the practice of a studio selling a package of films to an independent theater, forcing them to play films they didn't want to in order to show something they did. This practice was, of course, abolished in 1948 because of, yep, U.S. versus Paramount Pictures, but it seems that the similarity of these two terms is merely a coincidence. Oh, <laughs> random thought. <laughs> In a way, kind of, modern studios do kind of block book your summer by only releasing the films we're going to discuss in a bit. Everyone always finds a loophole. But yeah, whatever the origin, the term blockbuster was first used in film by publicists to market movies released during World War II to draw on readers' familiarity with the blockbuster bombs, hoping that this association would drive them to movies. The first known film to be described as a blockbuster was 1943's RKO picture Bombardier, a film about, you probably guessed it, U.S. Army bombardiers. The film was described as, quote, the blockbuster of all action thrill service shows. The film was a hit with audiences, less so with critics, because audiences were hungry for films about the war, and this term was used just a handful of times in the early days, all for war films. The term kind of fell out of vogue after World War II because the public at large was grappling with the fallout due to the devastation caused by the dropping of the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and therefore didn't really want to use the lighthearted alternative meaning of blockbuster. But not long after, the term was revived in 1948 by Variety in an article about big-budget films. By the early 1950s, the term was in regular usage though it was more of a colloquial film industry term, and it was used mostly in the trade press to describe a film that was large in spectacle, scale, and cost that would go on to earn hella dough at the box office. Back then, you had to earn the term blockbuster. A studio couldn't just call a film that before it came out like they do today. Throughout the 50s and 60s, studios would release their bigger budget films, this was mostly westerns, historical epics, and action films, in the last three months of the year. The logic of this being, as it got colder, people would begin seeking out indoor activities, you know, typically out of the brain, the snow, the what have you. And this, this, this tradition had been around since the beginning of film. 
because until 1925, no theaters had air conditioning. And unsurprisingly, nobody wanted to pack into a theater on a hot summer day to sit in a hot room with a bunch of hot bodies. That's why, you know, films that they wanted to do well did not release in the summer. By the time there was air conditioning, starting with the Rivoli Theater in Times Square in 1925, the movie-going habits of the nation were pretty much formed. It's funny that this used to be the case because it's when I was researching all this, it was hard for me to imagine like watching a movie in a hot theater after just my entire life experience being like freezing my ass off in a movie theater and like it being 95 outside and carrying a hoodie into a theater because I knew I was going to freeze my ass off. But so yeah. Times change. But despite the introduction of air conditioning into the movie theater going experience, studios were still reluctant to release big budget films during this still financially risky time of the year. They just assumed people would prefer to be outside. But Universal Pictures was about to release into the water something that would change all of that. Well, at the end of the day, there is one film above all others that would ultimately get the credit for kicking off the modern sense of the summer blockbuster. According to Virginia Tech film professor Stephen Prince, the elements were there long before 1975. In fact, Prince claims that it was Akira Kurosawa's 1954 film Seven Samurai and its, quote, racing, powerful narrative engine, breathtaking pacing, and sense-assaulting visual style, which he calls kinesthetic cinema, that first provided the, quote, clearest precursor and eventual model for the blockbuster film's emergence of the 1970s. According to Prince, Kurosawa became, quote, a mentor figure to a generation of emerging American filmmakers widely coming out of the film schools at this time that would develop the Hollywood blockbuster. This is especially notable when looking at Kurosawa's The Hidden Fortress. I forgot to look up when it came out. I believe it was 1951, which is the film that very heavily inspired Star Wars. I watched this film last night for the first time after years of wanting to see it because I'd always heard that like it's a blatant ripoff and just I'm not going to shit on anything. But wow, it's on HBO Max in the US if you want to see for yourself. It was a little bit of a bummer. I'm not going to lie. Great movie. Great, great, great movie. But Star Wars is not as creative as you think it is. Anyway, (laughs) when it comes down to it, according to the Guinness World Book of Records, the modern usage of the term blockbuster, meaning big-budget, expensive summer film, was born out of the success of Steven Spielberg's Jaws. In fact, the 1975 film killed it so hard at the summer box office, it changed the time of year people would go to the movies expecting to see big-budget movies. Like I mentioned earlier, super expensive prestigious films before this would typically be saved for the winter months. Jaws also began the tradition of many film practices that most people under the age of 50 probably would just assume is the norm for film promotion or even film going. I certainly assumed most of this was more or less the norm until like the last month or so. Jaws would be the first to use what is now considered modern marketing techniques. For example, advertising the film on television during primetime with 25 to 30 second spots. They also utilized the late night talk show circuit and implemented test screenings, which boosted the chance for word of mouth. Jaws was also the first film in the United States to go nationwide all at once on the same day. Before this, releases went a little bit more in waves, kind of like how indie films do now. Big cities first to 
typically New York and L.A., then maybe, you know, the other big cities that are less industry towns and then kind of going from there. This wildly successful marketing campaign sent moviegoers, especially teens with expendable income, to the theater in droves. Beach attendance tanked that year because people were either seeing Jaws or were afraid of the beach because of Jaws. The release of the film had been intentionally timed to come out in the early summer to do this, to, to scare the beachgoers. And if you're too scared to go into the water, where are you going to go? The cinema probably maybe, where you could see a beach, but not possibly maybe get eaten by a shark. You probably weren't anyway, but that's a different, that's a different issue and that's a different episode. Just go look at the October one. But yeah, Jaws made $470 million in its initial release, not adjusting for inflation, and became the first film to make over $100 million at the domestic box office. To give you an idea of just how huge these numbers are, the prior summer's biggest film, Herbie Rides Again, which was a sequel to Herbie the Love Bug, made just $69 million. So yeah, big, big, big difference. Jaws became a cultural phenomenon pretty much overnight and laid the foundation of what would soon be known as the summer franchise formula. Big budget thrills with merchandising and franchising potential. It also revitalized the creature feature genre. I think it spawned three sequels and an attraction at Universal Studios theme park. Two years later, George Lucas's Star Wars expanded on the summer success of Jaws, testing the waters, basically, no pun intended, on the financial viability of an original script released during the summer. Like, a big sci-fi film, big scoped film, but not something that people were necessarily familiar with. If you didn't know, Jaws was loosely based on a popular novel at the time, so there was already a little bit of interest in it. Well... Turns out Jaws wasn't a fluke. Star Wars set box office records and pretty much proved that the Jaws take wasn't a one-off. Star Wars would actually remain in cinemas for over a year when that was still a thing that could happen. After the success of Jaws and Star Wars, many Hollywood producers scrambled to create similar, like, event films is what they called them, with wide commercial appeal, and film companies began greenlighting increasingly large-budget films at a level not seen in decades, relying extensively on these new advertising and marketing strategies leading up to a film's theatrical release. Soon, all major film studios and distributors planned their annual marketing strategies around a big summer release by July 4th, which is the U.S.'s Independence Day for the 17% of my listeners who are not in the U.S. And by the by, Star Wars also kickstarted another oft-practiced element soon to be associated with the biggest franchise summer blockbusters, and that, of course, was the rampant production of merchandise. Not the first to do this by any margin, but certainly probably the most successful. As studios began copying this Jaws Star Wars model, for the next 20-ish years, more often than not, though, it would be a Spielberg or a Lucas or a Spielberg and Lucas film taking top prize at the summer box office. In fact, adjusting for inflation, Star Wars and Jaws still hold the top two highest grossing summer blockbusters of all time, ranking in a little over $2 billion and $1.32 billion domestically, respectively. The sequel to Star Wars, 1980's The Empire Strikes Back, would kick off the next decade, with Lucas and Spielberg joining forces the following year for Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Directed by Spielberg and produced by Lucas, the screenplay for Raiders had been written in 1978 and 79 following the success of Star Wars. Star Wars and Indiana Jones would become the first successful summer blockbuster franchise films. Yes, Jaws did have the sequels, but they never got close to the level of the first one. So, you know, technically one, but 
I've never even seen any of the Jaws sequels. The 80s and well into the 90s was probably the peak blockbuster era, likely due to most of the major studios being led by businessmen, not not really creatives, whose priority was making hella money, and those summer blockbusters certainly did. This practice launched scores of franchises, including Alien, Beverly Hills Cop, Ghostbusters, Batman, lots of other ones. All of these either started out as summer blockbuster films from the jump, or their sequels were moved to the summer to maximize earning potential. And then not only made a lot of money, but many of these allowed for the major leaps of technological advancement of CGI, which now, of course, is a staple in the modern summer blockbuster more often than not. And like I said, Spielberg and Lucas were the big summer boys practically every year into the early to mid-80s. Lucas had the Star Wars, Spielberg had the likes of E.T., and he even was a producer on the first Back to the Future film in 1985. The first major shakeup in the summer, a blockbuster market, came with the surprise hit and erotic volleyball film Top Gun in 1986, which was produced by Don Simpson and Jerry Brockheimer. These two would soon become big blockbuster boys in their own rights. The two would also take summer 87 with Beverly Hills Cop 2, which was shifted to a summer release as the first had released in the winter of 1984. Another surprising shakeup was 1989's biggest summer blockbuster. Directed by Tim Burton, Batman was a surprise smash and would be the first in a series of crucial steps to allow the superhero movie franchises as we know them today. The schedule for summer blockbusters, when you look at what comes out when, kind of developed an unofficial flow to it too, which more or less remains to this day. I'm going to use 1985's summer releases to illustrate this for no particular reason other than when I was researching this topic. This year reminded me how badly I wanted to watch Back to the Future again because it's been a minute. So here's how that summer's major releases went. Memorial Day, until the mid-90s or so, was the unofficial start of the summer blockbuster season, and in 1985, that meant the release of Rambo 2, a big-budget action film and sequel. June always kind of feels like the warm-up month, which you can definitely see with the following week, which saw the release of The Goonies, which came out just in time for the end of the school year and was obviously going to attract the kiddos with the disposable income. There was some other stuff, but at the end of June, you kind of got a glimpse of what was to come with Cocoon, which is a pretty big-budget sci-fi film film. Around 4th of July is where the shit kicks off. Back to the Future came out July 3rd. So did Red Sonia, which was a sword and sandals epic with a magic fantasy twist. The week after that, Mad Max Thunderdome. Other July releases from that summer included Day of the Dead, Explorers, The Black Cauldron, and National Lampoon's European Vacation. Even if you haven't seen most or any of these movies, you've likely at least heard of them, likely more than anything else that came out that year. Anybody remember Sweet Dreams? No, of course you don't. The Film Club podcast from a V Club describes summer blockbusters as B-movies with A-budgets. I actually really like that description because that's kind of what they are. With few exceptions, these movies I just listed aren't remarkable artistic films, but they are really, really fun popcorn movies, which despite what some of the, you know, more (laughs) prestigious filmmakers have said about the modern summer blockbusters of late, are a necessary evil. Unless you're actively seeking something indie out, you're probably not going to see a particularly nuanced film in theaters during the summer. August kind of has become the the wind down for the season traditionally, where we get like the less quality 
bigger budget movies because, you know, people are probably feeling the movie fatigue a little bit. The kids are going back to school. The sun is setting on the summer. In 1985, that meant August started out with Weird Science, which could kind of still probably attract a little bit of audience. It was still pretty early in the in the month. But then, you you know, it starts kind of winding down a little bit more. That's where you get Pee Wee's Big Adventure. By the end of August, you're seeing Agnes of God and American Ninja. Then, of course, comes The Void of September, which has a September baby who loves movies more than most things and honestly most people most days. This has been a lifelong frustration for me. Why do you hate Libra's movie studios? Anyway... In the late 1990s, Spielberg had another major summer success with 1993's Jurassic Park, which marked a major advance in the use of CGI in film. CGI would, of course, go on to become a dominant influence in the blockbusters of the 90s, used extensively in action films like Independence Day and Men in Black. Well, they're more sci-fi, but you know what I mean. Also, Jurassic Park's $912 million take also meant that, once again, Spielberg changed the way a summer blockbuster was measured, the success of it anyway. It basically translated into, now they needed to make hella more moolah to be considered successful. Even though the medium had been a part of film since its earlier days, 1994's The Lion King would become the first animated film to take the mantle of highest grossing summer film. This has only happened five times since 1994 if you're factoring in the international box office. Domestically, it's happened a bit more, but I tend to prefer international box office numbers personally. But yeah, the the, the five times were 2001 Shrek, 2003's Finding Nemo, 2004 Shrek 2, 2010's Toy Story 3, and 2017's Despair. Me 3. Another big part of 90s blockbuster movies continue to be Simpson and Bruckheimer, who, you know, got into like the big, big, big action movies that included Con Air, The Rock, and Armageddon. The final summer blockbuster of the millennium was, of course, Star Wars Episode I, The Phantom Menace, which saw the return of Star Wars for better or worse. Hollywood would face a difficult crossroads after the 9-11 terrorist attacks in 2001 because of the climate of uncertainty and fear that all of that had unshockingly dredged up. They kind of had to figure out, you know, it's it's a business. Studios had to figure out, like, what kind of film, like blockbuster summer film, would get audiences to go back into movie theaters when a lot of people were afraid of big public spaces. Well, turns out the answer was a superhero movie, which, of course, led to a bigger trend, which we'll get into. But all of this started out with 2002's Spider-Man, directed by Sam Raimi. Superhero films had already, of course, proved to be strong summer films before this. So it shouldn't have been the surprise. I feel like it was like looking back on it personally. I feel like because I was around at this point, I feel like everyone was shocked this movie did well. And, it, it, you know, looking at it historically, it's like, of course it did. But yeah, Spider-Man became the first movie to earn over $100 million on its opening weekend, which was May 5th, 2002, and heralded the age of the superhero movie. Of course, Fox's X-Men series predated Spider-Man by two years, and it had its little place in the sun and saw many popular summer releases over the years, though it's never quite been able to be top dog. Starting in 2001, we kind of saw a shift away from the summer blockbuster with Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone and Lord of the Rings, The Fellowship of the Ring releasing Harry Potter would have been like early to mid-November and Lord of the Rings came out in mid-December. And those are films you traditionally think you'd see kind of more in the summer. But I guess first Harry Potter films like 90% takes place with the snow. So I get that one. But I guess New Line kind of put it there too. But then those two movies actually became the highest grossing films of 2001. But these two films kind of proved that 
it doesn't ha- a movie doesn't have to just come out in the summer to be successful. There are other times people will go to the movies. It's also the time people originally used to go to the movies, but you know. So this kind of these releases sort of led to a little bit more nuances in the release schedules now, especially with the Marvel movies plugging and playing pretty much everywhere except September and October. I'm not salty. What are you talking about? I'm totally fine with the fact I was born in a movie going desert time. Anyway. From 2002 on, the top summer films have been pretty formulaic. It's either a superhero or franchise film or both, a big budget animation or a sequel of some sort. Most of the time, a combination of the two, in several cases, all of these things. Bigger budget comedies have also become a trend in the later half of the 2010s. They aren't the biggest boys, but they do pretty well. 2005 saw the beginning of Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight trilogy, starting with Batman Begins, though the biggest film that summer would be Star Wars Episode Three: Revenge of the Sith. The sequel to Batman Begins, 2008's The Dark Knight, would stand out for its memorable performances and realistic worlds, and the franchise as a whole has been lauded for being the rare superhero saga with a concise, wrapped-up ending. The Dark Knight Rises release in 2012 would see another shift, though not for a good thing, because of the tragic theater shooting in Aurora, Colorado during a midnight screening of the film. This led to a shift... Away from like the midnight showings, they're still around. But at that time, up until that point, for maybe about 10-ish years, and I think it was also part of like the Star Wars releases, it was a big thing to kind of like go at midnight and see it like right on opening day at midnight. They kind of moved away from that after this with sort of inventing like the preview day, which in several markets starts at 3 p.m. So you could see on Thursday night that whatever the big release is for the weekend, there were opportunities to see it the day before. Originally, it was pretty much just midnight, but, you know, not anymore because that's the world we live in now until, you know, that's we're not getting political. Previews have also kind of become a gauge for studios to judge how eager people are to see a new film. And this isn't this doesn't just happen in the summer. I went saw Violet Night at like 10 o'clock on a Thursday. Like it's it's still a thing. But of course, the current reigning champ, by and large, for the modern summer blockbuster belongs to the superhero movie, namely the MCU, which started off with 2008's Iron Man. And while it was not top dog that summer, still did pretty well. Marvel, as you're likely all too aware, would go on to incorporate all of its releases into a continuity it called the Marvel Cinematic Universe, MCU, creating a cinematic sphere in which all its heroes and villains could interact. Five of the next 10 summer films after 2012's Avengers would see a Marvel film at the top of the summer. That was Iron Man 3, Captain America Civil War, Avengers Infinity War, and Avengers Endgame. This is at the international box office, mind you. Domestic, I think Guardians was, was a top film of the summer, and it was an August release, so mixing it up. The biggest example of all of these, of course, is 2019's Avengers Endgame, and the film even very briefly became the biggest film of all time not adjusted for inflation. The worldwide opening week of that film actually shattered records and saw levels of movie going not really seen since the 1980s. The film came the first movie to earn over a billion with a b dollars in its opening weekend. So from like this highest high point comes probably the lowest low, because 11 months after the release of Avengers Endgame, the age of the summer blockbuster would come to a screeching pause. The COVID-19 pandemic would cause U.S. movie theaters to close in March 2020, which is a state they would remain in for the next year. Slews of planned summer blockbusters found themselves shelved in their studio's vaults until better days hopefully emerged. Why did they do that? These films are expensive to make. 
and studios bank on big box office to offset the costs of these big movies. And now that revenue stream was gone seemingly overnight, and they didn't really know what to do about that, and arguably still don't. Some discontinued delaying the film's releases, but others, most notably Warner and Disney to a slightly lesser extent, opted for releases in theaters when they reopened and on streaming concurrently. And this led to mixed results and a handful of lawsuits. The first full theatrical release without a streaming option was A Quiet Place 2, which opened over Memorial Day 2021. It took a $58 million box office, which was a considerable success after a year of closed theaters and a little bit of a tepid reopening, frankly, when they did eventually reopen in March. The 2022 summer box office saw less of that, but numbers are still quite wonky. This last year's summer box office champion was Top Gun Maverick. Not surprising given that in a time where it's been a chore getting people to go to the theaters for IPs they don't know, it it's not surprising at all that something that is very well known won the summer. So now's the time where we look at the future. And to be honest, the future is not looking like super ideal right now. But we are still technically dealing with a pandemic. The end of it, hopefully, but she's still definitely around. This means that people who are still squirrely about crowds have likely not returned to the cinema. And, and if when they do, it's probably not for an arty film. It's for a big superhero movie or a Top Gun, which is something they already know. It's great that money is being injected into the studios at all with these big movies. But the money they're making is by and large going back into those types of big films. And fatigue with that is inevitable. We've seen it before in the past. In my opinion, in a lot of people's opinions, this is not this is not a hot take. Hollywood is in need for its like 35 year or so like tune up. It happened in the late 1920s with the intro of sound, the 60s with the new Hollywood directors and in the early 90s with the wave of indie filmmakers. We're due for that. Very needed, like new technology, new talent, new ideas. And unfortunately, right now, because of the state of the world, investors and studios aren't willing to take the time to find those talents or foster those talents. And there's a huge financial risk right now to reinvigorate anything. It's like because movies, there's they've been a risky enterprise since the 1960s, honestly. And that that's not changing anytime soon. While the summer blockbuster has a firm grasp on the market still, it is becoming increasingly evident, however, that that's not the only time a movie can bring in big bucks. Look no further than the MCU, which is now planning to only release about 60% of its films during the summer, likely to avoid the fatigue. You gotta spread them out. Some critics and scholars who know this stuff way better than me are anticipating a shift to year-around release strategies eventually. Hollywood's current seasonal system means that blockbusters are pretty much only around in the summer. The Oscar baits are seen November to December. January and February tend to be, very unofficially and in my opinion, the hide the shitty movies around award season when people are still trying to see the good movies we made. And everything else, March, April, and September, October is pretty much free-for-all, though late April does occasionally see some early blockbusters a la the last two Avengers films. So knowing that... You know, the studios are mostly putting out big, big, big movies and not really making indie ones. What can we as audience members do to change that? Well, put your money where you want to see the art of film go. Yes, go see the big movies. 
They're fun. I go too. I love them. I'm not going to lie. But also take a risk every so often. Like right now, go see The Menu or Bones and All or the weird film that's playing at your local theater that you've never heard of. You may see something bad. Sure, that's a chance we all take. But you could find your new favorite filmmaker or movie. You never know until you try. Also support the up-and-coming filmmakers as well. If we don't, we're going to get those old guys' movies until they die, and then we're going to be left with no experienced artists to take their place, and that's going to be chaos. be a lot of crap. For now, Summer will remain the king of the box office, the time of the year when Hollywood makes its big bucks, but there are certainly changes on the horizon, which could one day mean the curtains for the summer season, but not yet. We're going into combat on a level no living pilot's ever seen. Not even him. You think up there you're dead. Believe me. My dad believed in you. I'm not going to make the same mistake. Someone's not coming back from this. Those are your pilots. Anything happens to them. You'll never forgive yourself. No turning back now. And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode. At Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at The Tinsel Factory, or you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I'm relying on word of mouth to get this podcast out there, so if you please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you'd like to help out in any way, I'd very much appreciate it. I've also got Buy Me a Coffee, where you buy me a coffee. I went old school and made my own coffee this morning. I got one of those weird little stainless steel percolators, and uh, they don't work on electric stoves, which is where I test ran it at my when I was at my parents' house last week. But they definitely do a great job on a gas stove, which is what I have. Big, big fan. Um, I've also got merch. Check it out the link in the show notes. Next week, the 2022 season finale, where we look back on some of the year's biggest film moments, ponder the Oscar noms for next year, and I answer some of the questions you guys have written in this year. I haven't finished the episode, so if you have anything you'd like me to, you know, elaborate on, shoot me, shoot me a message. I may not reply, but if you hear it next week, you know I got it. But yeah, that's it. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.